Should we uh, have a word of prayer? Our Father, we're thankful that you have again given us the grace to approach your word, that you have preserved that word, you have instilled within us the Holy Spirit to teach us the word of God. And we know that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and is a discerner or judge or critiquer of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. We ask tonight that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts to what truths you have for each of us. In Christ's name, amen. Tonight we're going to kind of pull together what we've done this year and uh, actually in the course of doing that go back two, three years to the, to the early part of the framework. The one event that we haven't dealt with uh, that we had scheduled for this year was um, the, the, the return from the exile. And that event, the restoration, which involves the doctrine of canonicity and prayer, we'll have to just pick up in the fall when we uh, come again. Um, we'll try to start the class earlier in the fall so we can get, this, get through this because we have four major events in the life of Christ, his birth, uh, his life, his death, his resurrection. And we're going to use, uh, approach the life of Christ differently. It's not going to be, so to speak, biographical. We'll follow the same mode that we've followed here by concentrating on events and what those events reveal, what doctrines, what truths they reveal about a God. And we'll use, in particular, a method of showing that if you don't master the Old Testament and you do not come to Jesus through the pages of the Old Testament with the understanding of the Old Testament, um, your view of Jesus gets skewed. So that's why it's important that we spend three years going through this framework um, in the Old Testament because now you'll see where it pays off when it comes to see who Jesus Christ is. Um, so tonight, I've passed out a, a little questionnaire sheet um, with some thought questions on it. And I want to go through these questions because um, I think these are the ones that will show you how, if you haven't thought about this this way already, how to apply a lot of this framework material. Uh, first thing I want to go back to with the first question is back two or three years ago when we started in Genesis, we started working with presuppositions. And the problem with that is that the average person never, including us, never examines our presuppositions. We just don't do that. We don't reflect on the fact that we carry basic presuppositions with us everywhere we go. Every time we respond to situations in life, that response reveals a map, a kind of an inner map that we have, or maps, plural, of reality. And before we spoke in terms of presuppositions, recently it's come to my attention, you can think of these things as maps that are sort of written into your soul. And we've all written them. We all have them. There's no such thing as a person without a map. The question is whether your map fits what the real world is or not. 
And the reason we want to look at that is because it goes back to a principle that we examined two or three years ago. And maybe some of you have forgotten this chart, but we'll review it in a minute. And that chart shows you that all human knowledge is limited. And no matter who you are, where you are, or who you're talking to, or anything else, we all are limited. We all have our thinking and our experience embedded inside this little box. And as, no matter how smart you are, no matter how much experience you've had, you're still trapped in the box. And being trapped in the box means that you can't ever get out of it to make an absolute statement. You never can get a universal statement. So you have to, you have to come up with some guesses. And there's various approaches to that. And we said before, and we say again, that there's only two views of reality. So we're going to start with a review tonight, just keeping this in mind that every person's map has to be built out of limited material. All of us build our maps that way. All of us have our presuppositions in a limited fashion. So the question now is, how do we proceed? We said over and over that there are only two basic pictures of the universe. And you can say, well, you know, there's 108 different authors out there and 55 religions. But when it gets down to the basics, um, there's only two views. And when we look at this, we want to look at some of the features and remind ourselves. Uh, I'm just going to review some of them and then we'll go to the questions. Um, you look at this. On the left side, the biblical position, the biblical map of reality is found between the time of Noah and the time of Abraham. It was found in the ancient monotheistic faiths of the tribes of the world. That ancient monotheism perpetuated, I think we studied it last year, when God called Abraham out and we said, well, what about the heathen who never heard? And I mentioned uh, Paul Richardson's book, Eternity in Their Hearts, and how he had gone into Southeast Asia, how he had ample evidence that far before the missionaries even got into Southeast Asia, these people were singing hymns to Yahweh. They uh, knew about the fall in the Garden of Eden. They knew about the first creation, the man, the woman. They knew about the flood. They knew all about that. Well, where did they get that from? They didn't get it from missionaries. They got it from generational passing down, transmission inside their own culture because they ultimately descended from the family of Noah. So ancient monotheism, ancient Israel, the Bible, fundamentalism, all of these share this view. And the view starts with this distinction, the created creature distinction. And again, I point out that we can't review this enough. In the biblical position, God is absolutely different than man and nature. He is, we are analog, we have some similarities, but there's a categorical difference between God, man, and nature. These are everlasting distinctions. Theologians call them transcendental distinctions because nothing changes them, ever. The best, one way of learning, and we've stressed this with this framework, one way of learning is to go to the competing view because when you go to the competing view, you can often get insights on your position. So we go over here to paganism and we say to ourselves, okay, in paganism, what do they believe? P 
paganism, as we have used it, means the belief in any god except the god of the Bible. Traditionally, it's Judaism, Islam, and Christianity are kind of non-pagan. Uh, Islam being an offshoot of the Bible, a heretical uh, offshoot of the Bible. But all of these follow the same basic trend, the same basic plan, the same basic ideas. It's common to all of these. And that's the power of thinking this way. So when we start thinking about our mental maps and where we're coming from and why we react the way we do, when we get into question two here and some of these questions, let's look at them from this point of view. This gives you the overall perspective. Behind the opposite position from the creator-creature distinction is there isn't a distinction. Very simple. There is no distinction between God and nature, really. God is viewed as sort of a superman, just differing in degree but not in kind. So you have a continuum of the nature, the gods, and man. Back three years ago, remember, when we read Genesis 1, I had you read the Enuma Elish, um, the Babylonian Genesis, and remember the goddess Tiamat, um, the universe is made out of her body, showing that in their thinking that the God and nature were kind of united. They were part and parcel of each other. So that's what we mean by the continuity of being. And we'll see that that has tremendous behavioral implications. It's not just theoretical theology here. Practical uh, behavioral results of this. Then we come down to the bottom line, as it were, when you take this position behaviorally, here's where it leads. It will lead to the fact that every one of us faces a personal sovereign that ultimately furthers back we have to deal with a personal sovereign God. And that makes us responsible. That's where responsibility comes from. And frankly, only in the biblical position do you have responsibility. This way. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But watch the big picture. We're just kind of reviewing here on a quick brief of the big picture. In this view, you start up here with a creator-creature distinction. You wind up with real responsibility. Over here, you wind up in this blur where everything's kind of blurred together. And what you have is not a personal God in back of it all because the gods themselves are limited. So in back of them, you have this impersonal fate or chance um, whatever the word is, in the ancient documents that we read two or three years ago, the, the word for fate was tablets of destiny. But the bottom line in all of this theory, the bottom line is that it renders us victims. We are not responsible. We are part of a thing. We are part of the cosmos. We are the way we are because that's just the way we are. That's just the way our genes fell out in the chance allocation of history. So, we are ultimately passive. We are ultimately victims. We are trapped in the chain of being. Where this comes out today is I am a product of my genes. I am a product of my nurturing. I am a product of my environment. Yeah, all these things affect us. Obviously, genes affect us. I mean, we have boy genes and we have girl genes. So we know that the genes affect us. The problem is that do they control us 100%? That's the issue. So 
we have to face this. This is a big issue in our society. If you want to see where it's popping up, look at the explanations for crime. It's due to nurture. It's due to environment. Change the environment, you change the person. Is that true? Change the environment, you change the person? Not necessarily. But it would be true if the model here is right. If we are ultimately products of our environment, that makes sense. But if, on the other hand, the Bible is correct, and we're, we are actually choosers, and we have responsibility, then changing the environment will not necessarily change us. And a good example of that is, where was the perfect environment? Eden. Did the perfect environment stop man from sinning? No, it didn't. So therefore, what's the deal with the perfect environment? See, the environment isn't the issue. The issue boils down to something very simple. It's our individual response to the sovereign God. Period. Our choice. And we can blame nurture, we can blame genes, we can blame everything else, and all of those do color. I'm sure they shape the, the different kinds of sins. Certain areas of the world are predisposed to sinning in this direction versus other people sinning in that direction. So there's brands of sin that are controlled by the environment. But sin isn't. Sin is a result of rebellion against God. And the essence of that, as we've seen from this slide, is the idea that we are stiff-arming God. And that's, that's the essence of sin. It's not something necessarily theft, murder, adultery, or all those. Those are results. Those are brands of it. But the root of it is this. Straight-arming, stiff-arming God. I want to be my authority, period. Okay, now let's come to question two on the paper. And these are some ways in which this doctrinal truth come, shows up in experience. What is my most basic view of all reality? In other words, it's time to reflect. And we don't normally do this. We're too busy to do this most of the time. And the result is we never do it. We don't think back, pause, and say to ourselves, look, I can think of myself. You know, sometimes you dream, and you can dream of seeing yourself in a position. Well, sometimes you can just daydream and think of yourself and look at yourself and look at the way you're thinking. Back off. That's one of the things that we can do that animals can't do. I mean, your cat and your dog don't sit there at their dish and think, you know, there were 52 other brands you could have picked up at the store. Now, they may react to the food that way, but the point is that they're not seriously thinking about that. So, but we can reflect. And we can reflect, strangely, we can reflect at our own hearts. And God has given us that capability. You know where you see it in the Bible? Book of Psalms. How many times in the Book of Psalms can you read as David talks to himself? He says, oh, my soul, you're cast down. What is that? That's the self-reflection. And it's, a, it's something that we don't often do because we, in the busyness of life, we're, we're running from one thing to the next and we don't back off and just look at what's going on with us. So that's what we're asking in question two. If you take, take a back seat and look at yourself in the front seat, what do you see as your map? What's the view, your basic programming in your soul that controls your behavior, that automatically takes over in responses. It's got to be one of these two views. So we go back to this, because it may be a variant in some way, shape, or form, 
but it's one of these two falls into, and we, we most of us have pieces of both. That's the problem. We're hybridized, and we have we, we come out of a, the world background, and so we have pieces of each of these things. So, following question two on the sheet, is it a creation? And if it is, we really believe there are two absolutely different levels of reality. There's God, and we have no idea what's on his mind other than what he's told us. He has infinite knowledge. We are finite in our knowledge. We'll never be infinite in our knowledge. We have to take what he says on authority, but we have the assurance that somebody does know. There is a plan in every detail, behind every molecule, behind every electron and proton. There is a plan that everything has rationality and purpose. It is so vast, so amazing, so complicated that we can't penetrate it. But we don't have to penetrate it. We can take it that he has the plan. So that relieves me of a lot. Right off the bat, that relieves me of the fact that I don't have to make up the map of everything. Nor does the whole human race have to make up. The map's already there. It's in God's mind. So, if we believe that way, then we believe in the creator-creature distinction. If we believe the other way, then somehow gods, the angels, men, and animals all exist in relative complexity. And, and don't think this is just pagan. We tend to think that way sometimes, that God is... Uh, more good than we are. Not absolutely good. Good and holiness of a kind that we can't attain apart from whatever he gives us. See that separation concept. When it's blurry, we're drifting. We're drifting over into this continuity of being idea. The implication is, following the question two again, the next series of questions follow behaviorally from these views. What is my ultimate authority? Is it social convention, family, peer, or church approval, mystical personal experiences, great literature of mankind, or those parts of the creature's mind, creator's mind that he has shared in scripture with us? So what is your ultimate authority? And you just have to keep asking. This is something you can't ask once. You ask it thousands of times. When you reflect upon how you personally are living your life and solving problems. I think to myself, or retro, I can think back to a situation, what was I thinking when I did that? What, what was I really doing moment by moment as far as my ultimate authority? What mattered most in that situation? Was it what people thought about me or was it what God thought about me? Remember how we defined sin? We took went back to David's psalm and here David had murdered, committed adultery, really messed up. A lot of social consequences from that. But remarkably, in the text of Psalm 51, what does it say? Against who did he sin? And sin alone. Against God. Now that sounds like he's, like he's, he's being callous to the social consequences. That's not, he, he, was, he knew about the social consequences. The point, however, was that sin can't be defined in terms of social consequences. You start defining sin in terms of social consequences, you wind up with some sort of relativism where you compare your social consequences of your sin with Joe Blow's consequences. And of course, you always come out on top because you pick your area of strength versus their weakness, and that all makes you look good. So that's the problem and error of thinking of sin primarily in terms of social consequences. You can't think of it that way. And if you do, 
then you're drifting. If I think that way, I'm drifting. I'm drifting away from the authority of Scripture, of the created-creature distinction. I have to give an ultimate answer for my life to Him. I don't give an ultimate answer to my life to anybody else. I don't give it to my parents, my pastor, uh, the police. I don't give it to the military. I don't give it to the government. I don't give it to the teachers. I don't give that. I give some accountability, yes. But I don't give my ultimate uh, confession of my life to anybody except the one who holds me responsible. So, these are all wrapped up in the map. Do I have a proper mapping of reality in my head, in my soul? Do I really understand this to create a creature distinction? And keep this in mind. All right, this leads to the next question. Who am I? Basic question. Am I a responsible, finite analog of the Creator? Remember we went through this? And just to review again, um, but this is just so basic. And when we get, of course, obviously into the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both God and man in one person, then this gets really kind of complicated. But remember we said you could take some God's attributes. We could take God in his sovereignty. We could take man with his choice. And there's an analogy between God's sovereignty and my choice. Um, but they're not identical. This clearly is categorically different than this. This is that of the infinite creator. This is a finite version of it. Now, this, sa- uh, this saves us because today all kinds of debates arise about this. Well, obviously, one that's, that's, that's very prevalent all over the place and basically has taken our society by storm. And that is that people of homosexual orientation can't help themselves. It's genetic. It's determinative. And they are victims. And this is not something to be judged or evaluated. We're not talking about judging people now. We're talking about the particular behavior, okay? So we can love the people and disagree with their behavior. So we're not talking about hating people here. We're talking about the issue. And the issue is, are we responsible or are we not? And the answer that's being given nationally from coast to coast in all the universities and all the think tanks is, the answer is no. I am not responsible. And if you're going to hold me responsible, you're wrong and you hate me and you're out of line. You don't respect my rights. Your rights? The rights to what? Well, because I'm determined. I mean, you know, I can't help this. I was born this way. And so, you have to respect me because I was born this way. This debate hinges right here. This is where the whole thing is decided. Right here. And it's decided in the basis of basic maths. And the fact, whenever you see homosexuality attain popularity, now obviously homosexuality has always been with us, but when it becomes socially acceptable in any society or country or nation, it's a signal. Because Romans chapter 1 picks that of all sins out as a flagship sin of paganism. What does it mean? It means that whenever you have a society which acknowledges and frankly openly agrees with this position, then what you have is enough people in that social unit that are operating off of this map, this wrong map, that the society is, is, is disintegrating. 
you haven't got enough people left in society at large that have correct maps of human responsibility. And so the people with the correct maps of human responsibility become a very small minority, and that creates a problem. So, again, we're not talking theory here. We're talking about a basic idea of who am I? Do I have choice? Uh, when I face temptation, when I face sin, when I face a choice, a positive choice, or when I face an opportunity, am I looking upon that as, gee, I can't do that, or I can do this, or I, I, just, I just can't choose this. I want to, but if not, I can't. Well, who says that? God says that I am responsible. And he can't hold me responsible if I don't have choice. So choice is the axiom of being held responsible and accountable. The opposite in, in point three is that I'm a life form wholly determined by genetics, upbringing, and the environment. And the word, key word in that sentence is W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy. We're not denying genetics and upbringing and environment have a role. Obviously they do. But what we're arguing is that they don't wholly determine it. Years, uh, was, was it ten years ago that they had the famous experiment at Johns Hopkins that was paraded across the newspapers of the world? That they had, they had uh, operated on the cadavers of what they thought must have been homosexual men and they found the brain was different than those of heterosexuals. Well, it turns out now that they, their argument about how they define what behavior pattern these guys were doing. So the experiment isn't considered to be too valid. But the idea was that, gee, we saw genetic, hey, there were structural differences in the brain. See? We told you all along. These people are different. All right? If we hold to this, then something's wrong with the logic. Well, what do you suppose is wrong with the logic? Maybe what we observed in the cadavers was the result of the behavior, not the cause. Think about it. If our body did not respond to behavior, how would an athlete train? How would a man who runs race? How would a football player? How would a boxer? How would a weightlifter train if the body didn't respond to exercise? It didn't respond to behavior. Our bodies do respond to behavior. They alter themselves phenomenally. People learn to think. They think fast. There can be mental drills. There can be physical drills. Our neuron patterns in our brains can establish networks for doing all kinds of math. People want to specialize in doing quick calculations in their head. That is possible. Why? Because our bodies are built to do our calling. Sad thing is that the same rule holds when we sin. When we do things out of line with God, our bodies begin to accommodate to that. Our bodies begin to change to that. And so now what do we do? Now we've built in flesh patterns. Now the neurons up here are programmed to operate that. It becomes more and more easy to do that. So the idea then is that if I am a life form wholly determined by the genetics upstream, or am I one that has a choice. This is fundamental to the great debates going on around us today. And it all hinges back to this. What is man? What are we? So we said we're finite analogs. We have a picture of God's sovereignty in our choice. God is holy. He's righteous and he's just. And what's the human analog of God's attribute of righteousness? We have a little thing called conscience. Still operates this side of the fall. 
What is that little thing called conscience? That voice that you can't suppress? It's, it's a residue. It's an analog of His holiness. It's a reminder. It's something, it's like the, the electric plug. It's waiting to be plugged in. It's a reminder that we're built for Him. We have a human thing called love. Animals don't have that. God does. And this is a finite analog to this. The difference, the structural differences. This love is a perfect love because it's never threatened. Never on the defense. This love is vulnerable and exercises only to the point where it's secure enough to, to act. A person can't really love unless they feel safe. That's why in First John, the opposite of love is not hate. What is it that casts out fear? It's love. See, love and fear are opposites in the scripture. Because security and love go one hand, insecurity and fear go the other one. So you have that analog. Then you have God in his omniscience, who knows perfectly, and we have human knowledge. And all this year, particularly, we've emphasized contracts and covenants and all this. Well, now let's just look at the contracts and covenants we've talked about. Abrahamic covenant, Sinaitic covenant, the New Covenant, the Palestinian covenant. What's this here? God's omniscience. In his omniscience, he has a perfect plan for history. He has all kinds of details in his omniscience. He chooses to take little pieces of that and he reveals those pieces down here to us. Now, the problem is that he doesn't give us the whole picture. Book of Job. Job sits there in the middle of a suffering situation. He wants to know, why did this happen to me? And it's a piece that God did reveal to Job. And after 42 chapters, God still doesn't reveal it to Job. Remember, it was last year we went through Job. Remember the observation we made in that text? What do you notice? After all the suffering and heartache and loss that Job has, God comes in like a, a train, like a big bulldozer, and wallops a guy. And you say, that's being very unsensitive. You know, well, you know, gee, you'd think that God wouldn't have certification to counsel here to listen to some people talk about Job. God didn't act like a, a traditional counselor there. But there was a reason why God didn't. He came in heavy in Job, I believe, to shock him. Because when we're suffering and when we're wandering around, we are in shock. And the result is we don't, we don't perceive, we don't respond correctly, and God has to get our attention. So God comes in and you, you watch how he gets Job's attention. It's about 75 questions. Boom, 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 boom. Where were you when I created the world? What did you do this? Can you count the, the sand of the sea? Can you do this? Can you do that? Where were you when I put the bars on the door? Blah, 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 blah. What is he doing? He's not telling Job why Job suffered, but he's doing something else. What is this something else that's going on here? He's making Job aware of who? Who he is and who God is. And what is that? The creator-creature distinction. So it's more important, apparently, that we perceive this difference than it is the details. Once we get that in our head, then we understand, okay, I don't know what the truth is. He hasn't revealed the peace to me, but I know enough that there is a reason for it. 
This is not nonsense. This is not irrationality. God hasn't forgotten me. I'm not in the jam because he made a mistake. Phone calls got switched. Wrong file got read in the computer. There's nothing like that. It's the fact that he has done it his way and he's not saying why. And he is forcing me, by not telling me, he's forcing me to bow before him. What else am I going to do? Sit and argue with him for the eternity? He's got me aced. I can't do anything. And that's exactly where God got Job then. So it gets back to basics. All right, now we go to question four. We went along in these, in these basic um, framework. And before we get out, actually, let's go to five before we go to four. Because one of the things we want to do, as we look at the early part of the first year of the series, we dealt with those events. Creation, the fall, the flood, and the covenant. And the two biggies that you always want to remember, no matter what happens, even before salvation, folks, even before the gospel, you've got to remember the creator-creature distinction, which is with the creation of that, and you've got to remember the fall. If you don't anchor yourself in these events, then the rest of it, I'm sorry, the gospel is going to come across to you as trivial. You're going to misinterpret it. You're going to think it's psychological. You're going to think it's a little religious exercise game or something. But you can't get a real view of the gospel if you don't have a real view of these basic events. So, when we come to evil, evil and suffering start here. And that means that we go back to the diagram of good and evil. And you remember we've gone through this infinite number of times, but let's go through it again. It doesn't hurt to review. What it does just rewrites our maps better. So repetition builds the map and makes it more solid. Christians are often on the defense about this. And Satan, the evil one, will make you on the defense. If you have a shocking thing happen to you or a loved one, the first thought that comes to your mind is to blame God for it. And it's always interesting to me, I've heard atheists who claim that God doesn't exist curse God by his name. Isn't that a strange thing? If God doesn't exist, what are you cursing his name for? Well, I'll tell you why you're cursing his name. Because you, at bottom, like Paul says in Romans 1, you're not an atheist. At bottom, you know very well he exists, and you know who to blame. You know who's sovereign. You know who allowed that to happen. Of course you do. Don't come here and tell me you don't believe God exists. It leaks out of your mouth every time you get a problem. So, God exists, and he is in control. And what happens is the pagans always like to make it look like we're the ones that have the problem. Oh, Christianity has a problem with evil. So, let's look at the pagan position. You know, there's nothing like being exposed to viruses to get inoculated. So, that's what we're doing. In the framework, we're exposing ourselves deliberately to the world under controlled situations to get inoculated, to get vaccinated. So we add little doses of the toxin just to see what it looks like. And that's how we learn. Well, in the unchristian position, good and evil coexist, right? 
death exists, sorrow, suffering, sickness, adversity. Everybody knows this. Here's the deal, though. In the non-Christian position, has it always existed? You see that? In the non-Christian position, will it also continue to exist forever? Yes, it will. Because it's part and parcel of reality. There never was a time without it. There's no fall. There's no transition point. There's nothing, no time ever when it wasn't there. So it's always going to be here. No escape from it. And as we said, this is the reason why we have Americans, Asians don't do this, but only stupid Americans, believe in happy reincarnation. The New Agers going around thinking it's cool to believe in reincarnation. The Asiatics have had centuries to think about this, and they hate reincarnation. They believe in it, but they hate it. How do you get off the reincarnation wheel? Who wants to be reincarnated and go through this mess again? Or for the thousandth time? I want to get off of this thing. So what do they do? They commit spiritual suicide and go into nirvana. It's a very eloquent answer to this problem because it's an admission that it doesn't go away. So this is the position if you don't believe the Bible. The Bible says that God is good and always has been good and God has never been contaminated by evil. This will come out later in a doctrine we're going to learn next year about what's called the impeccability of Jesus Christ and how he was tempted and yet he couldn't be tempted and how you get those two truths together. Because as God, he was good. He never was contaminated with evil and could never be contaminated with evil. Therefore, how could Jesus Christ be tempted? And that's a big discussion. But he was tempted. Down here, we have the creation. And we have a time between creation and fall when there was no evil. So we know that evil cannot always exist. Then we have the judgment when God separates permanently good from evil. So our problem is that we have a temporary problem of good and evil in between the fall and judgment. But it's bracketed. It's controlled. It's not going to go on forever. Hasn't been forever. So it's, it's limited. So it's actually the Christian position that has the limitation on good and evil. Not the non-Christian. He's got the big problem. He just doesn't understand he's got the problem. All right. This has behavioral consequences. Now let's look at question five. How am I responding to evil and suffering in my life or in the lives of others? And just, again, back off and reflect how you respond to these kinds of situations. And ask the Holy Spirit to reveal your man. When you respond, is your response, when you really look at how you respond, does that show one of the other positions. If I'm, I've written this in kind of funny language here in five, so let's, let's go through it. I've always tried in both of these alternatives to put the biblical position first and the non-Christian position second. In a biblical position, first of all, when I see a child die, tragedy, and you say, what brought this into existence? Yeah, what did bring it into existence? Seems like the Bible tells me the story. Adam and Eve brought it into existence by a choice. Who brought death into the world? So, what does that make me? Oh, well, if I was in the garden, I wouldn't have sinned. No, no. We all would have. 
because we participated. Adam and Eve are our representation. That's why we're sharing. We are sharing the results of Adam and Eve's decision because in God's mind, they represented each one of us. You and I were represented by what they did. They are not different from us. They are, before God, our representatives. And you say, well, that's unfair. Well, then, you know what I'd say in return? Then it's unfair for Jesus Christ to represent us in heaven because he's the Son of Man, second Adam. So you can't have it both ways. So that's why in question five, the first part of that is, as a participant in its historic origin. So every time you see suffering in the world, you see starvation, you see cancer, you see death, you see violence, you see, just before you get too proudful and start, well, you kind of thing. Now, God needs advice from us on how to run his universe. Just, just think, we are participants in the historic origin of that, whatever it is that's shocking you at the moment. We are participants in the historic origin of that. We are also, you are also a receiver of the promise of its final end. Remember the apocalyptic literature we just got through studying? So we've already been told about this. We've been told that he one day will do this. The separation will be absolute, final, and irrevocable between good and evil. By the way, that's what makes sanctification so painful because it's, it's tearing us. Pieces of us have to be jettisoned to make us uh, acceptable for eternal life with God. And then other parts have to be redeemed. And that's the pain. That's what's sorrowful about sanctification. It's part of this process, getting ready for the end. So, do I respond this way? That I participated in, in here, point F, I have the assurance of J. Therefore, I've, I've already cut this thing down to size. Here. It's not out of control as in the non-Christian position. If I don't take that and I look at how I respond to suffering and evil in my life, I could be responding, and I have to detect this on my little inner map, am I responding as a hopeless observer and a victim? If you consider yourself in the face of evil to be a hopeless observer and a victim, got the wrong piece of the map going there. Got to get the map straightened out. And how do you get the map straightened out? You get the map straightened out by constantly going back to these biblical truths. The creation, the fall, the flood, and the covenant. And reading the stories and, and getting the imaginative food out of the text. All right, now we come to four. Go backwards one. And as we go into that, remember the last event, creation, fall, flood, and covenant, whatever I did with the frame of reference ahead. Um, it's good. Anyway, the covenant, fourth event, is the picture, the Noahic family going out onto the earth. Remember we said how, we, we said in excruciating detail, these guys left maps. They mapped all of Antarctica before the ice cap. Uh, they set up pyramidal architecture in the Western Hemisphere and the Eastern Hemisphere. All that was done before Abraham. All that was done by the great-great-grandsons of Noah. That's how ingenious these guys were. They navigated. In fact, they drew a map. Remember we said the only way you can measure longitude is with a clock. You can't measure it with a sextant. So if they 
made maps of Antarctica, it must mean that these guys had clocks. Where did they get the clocks from? Sign of the geniuses of the sons of Noah. And we come out of that. And what we are, how do we relate to other people? It's a major issue in our society today. It's not theory. These are major issues. How do I relate to other people? Now think about the covenant. Think about creation. In both of those things, God ordains certain relationships. He structured them. Marriage, responsible labor, family, civil government, the church. These are all structures. We did not invent those that are not human sociological good ideas. They are structures that God made. So then when we ask the question, how do I relate to other people... That question is usually answered far too rapidly for serious thought. When you ask that person, uh, every person, how should I relate to other people? They think, ooh, I should be good, I should do this, I should do that. And I should. It's all me against them as individuals. And you see, the moment you start to answer the, try to answer the question that way, it's wrong, miss something, we miss the structure. First of all, how are we all related to one another? Independently of our rights, skin color or anything else. We're all related to us through Adam. We all share deep common DNA. We are all related. We don't have to relate. We are related by position in Adam. Moreover, most of us are related even a closer bond physically because of our racial identity with the sons of Jacob, probably. Most of us probably come from the sons of Jacob. So, we're related that way. We don't have to try to relate. We do relate. So, those are the structures. As a fellow member of God-designed structures, the human race out of Adam and Noah, marriage, God made marriage, wasn't a vote, not a new idea It was created in 2000 B.C. Somebody said, that's a cool idea. Marriage is something that was ordained originally in the Garden of Eden. Period. That's it. Family and civil government and church. What happens today? Here's the or in that sentence. In point four. Look at the or statement. What's happening today in discussion after discussion on talk shows, and television, and books, and newspapers and magazines, people want to relate as a fellow ethnic, meaning part of my tribe. And when everything else breaks down, what do people gravitate to? Their tribe. Want some good illustrations? What's going on in Europe today? The last eight years. The Balkans. What's happening there? I'm a Serb. Well, I'm a Bosnian. I'm a Croatian. When, when the whole society falls apart, there's no law, there's no business, there's no banking, there's no communication, there's no police, there's no law and order. Everything's gone to pop. Resort to their race. They resort to this racial identity. But they don't think so. And I used to think that every Oriental was the same. And then I have a Japanese daughter-in-law, and since I've got to know her, I can tell the difference between Korean, Southeast Asian, Chinese, and Japanese. And she fills me in on 
well, the Japanese have certain ideas about the Chinese, and the northern Chinese have ideas about the southern Chinese, and the Taiwanese don't like the Vietnamese. And holy mackerel, I didn't know all that. See? It's, it's ethnic thing again. So, if we respond, if you find on your map that you feel closer to somebody who's racially akin to you, closer to them in times of crisis than you do to a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, got the wrong map. Got the wrong map there. Got to correct that. Got to get more doctrinal truth down into that map. Change it. Or some people are just, it's me. Never mind my fellow ethnic. It's just, I'm Superman. I'm Rambo. I'm the big boy on the block. And that lasts until you meet somebody bigger than you. Alright, six. Involved in all of this as we came forward in time, remember we, we came to the fact that God redeems. And he's, not, he's going to separate good and evil. And so we have the time of the disruption. And we've entitled that period of history from Abraham on down to David the rise of the kingdom of God in Israel as the disruptive kingdom. Why did we call it the disruptive kingdom? Because it disrupts the paganization of society. It disrupts the good and evil pattern as normal. It's an intrusion. It's an interruption. God doesn't allow us to go on in history in evil. He reaches down and he interrupts and he disrupts. So that's his disruption. And that's the history of the Old Testament. He's disrupting, interfering with our culture. Why does he do that? Because he's going to separate good and evil. He is going to solve the evil problem. So everybody wants God to solve the evil problem. If God was good and God was powerful, then surely he doesn't love us. And if he loves us, then he's impotent to do anything about it. Classic argument. But what is so ironic is what do you think he's doing here? Aren't these the preliminary steps in history that he's taking already to get away to, to deal with the evil problem? That's the whole story here. This is the point. So six, what do I view as the final evaluation of my life as a human being? Where am I going? And we talked about so far this evening on our maps where we've come from. Question six is where are we going to? What do I view as the final evaluation in my life? What matters? Now again, the alternative. Having my life completely evaluated before my creator and judge, like David, or having my life evaluated by its effects on fellow human beings or my feelings. How I feel on my deathbed. Gee, I feel good today. I'm dying. So my life must be good. People, people are this way. Well, if we believe that God has a plan and he's working his plan, he's standing at the end of this program. And we went on this year to see the fact that when we examine how he ruled in Egypt, uh, in Israel, he has a disciplinary process. We learned that this whole period of history, when you watch God interfering and messing around and judging these people and blessing these people and cursing those people, it's all part of the king's discipline. He, this is how our God is. And he's trying to show us what his kingdom 
is going to require what shape we have to be in to come into fellowship with him for all eternity. We have to get in shape. So, what's the view, the evaluation? Is it more important to think in, in your map, your view, when you think about your life, what's more important? Does it matter more what fellow human beings, and this is not to say just go screw up here now. This is just saying, whence comes the ultimate issue? Where do I finally look to decide issues of value for me? Am I looking even at my fellow believers? Now, they can be mirrors to point me to the truth, but they're not the truth. They point me to the Word of God. And then I go to the Word of God. Now, why do we emphasize this? Why do I make such a point? Because whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And if my I'm responding to what people think about me and allow their value system to teach me, where's the faith? Where did it go? I'm just, it's just social pressure that's going on there. That's all it is. I'm just, I'm, it's just peer pressure. Well, God wants more than peer pressure. He wants us to personally know that he expects this, 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 and this. Then I walk by faith because now I'm trusting him. Now I'm, I'm God-oriented, not human-oriented. And all during this time period, um, this this uh, year and last year, we had two events that played a key role in picturing salvation. Remember? One earlier was the, ex- uh, the exodus, judgment, salvation, and before that we had the flood, and we emphasized that in judgment, salvation, it's a public thing, it's not just private, it's historical, it's not just in our imagination, it's objective, not just subjective. So now we come to seven. How do I view salvation? as the only escape from evil or as a pleasurable optional add-on to life's experiences. Listen to some gospel preaching today. You think the, go- the success gospel or something, you know, I mean, you make a you know thousand dollars, we can make two thousand more with Jesus. That's an add-on. It doesn't challenge you. And it gets back to the same illustration I used a couple of years ago when I said, you can visualize this um, you moved into this house. You want it redecorated. So they call up the redecorator and comes to just change out the curtains and the carpeting, you know, do a deal. And he shows up in the front lawn with a bulldozer. Going to take the whole house out. Huh? I didn't ask for quite that re- renovation. I didn't have that in mind. But that's what Jesus does with the gospel. He shows up as the bulldozer. He takes the whole thing out. and starts all over. That's regeneration. Okay, so... How do I view salvation? As the only escape from evil. Do we really think that? That it is the only escape from evil? Or do we think it's it's an option? Do I think of uh, salvation as a replacement? Watch this one now. Remember we studied this in Justification by Faith? As a replacement of my best works or as a means of helping me do better works. Let's read that one again. Do I view salvation as a replacement of my best works or as a means of helping me do better works? Now, does salvation result in means to do better works? Yes, it does. But is that the basis of our being saved? What is the basis of our being saved? Our righteousness or Christ's righteousness? 
Christ's righteousness. And again, correct the maps. If you look at your map at times, review times, and you start thinking, you start catching yourself thinking this way, say, "Uh uh-oh, got a map problem here. Something's not right. And it doesn't have to happen all the time, but from time to time, really seriously reflect on this to see if these pieces that we talked about here, these, these framework doctrines, are really working and taking hold, or are they just entertainment Thursday evening? Do I think of salvation as part of a universe-wide program or as a private psychological experience? And what do I mean by that? I mean that what happens in my soul and your soul is related to what's going on out beyond the galaxies in the angelic realm. I'm saying that what is going on in our hearts here in Jarrettsville in 1998 is vitally related to what went on in the Roman Colosseums in 250. There's a connection. And the program of the Holy Spirit's work in our life is all through the cosmos because Christ shall reign and every knee shall bow. Things in heaven and what? Things on earth. So there's a universe-wide program going on. It is not a mere private psychological experience. You hear this sometimes in testimonies. Well, I, I accepted Jesus and here's what he did for me. Well, that's true. But if it's left in that language, you know what happens. What does any greasy non-Christian do to you? The moment you start talking that way. Well, that worked for you. Nice. I'm glad to hear that. That's great for you. So there goes the whole idea of the universal claim of the gospel. It just gets swallowed up in relativism. As something, do we think of salvation as something initiated by God? Or do I think of it as the fact that it resulted because I searched for it? Now, is this to say that I searched? Yeah. But who was stimulating you to search? So, in the end, how, how were you saved? Was it because God did something and he initiated, he called to you in some way, through circumstances, other people in your family, other people in your workplace, somehow, how did you become a Christian? What led you to that? Pain, maybe, in your life? Pleasure? Something? Emptiness? But it was God initiating it. And finally, do we view salvation? And this one's a little tricky. I had a hard time wording this one. As assuaging God's wrath or as God's arbitrary forgiveness? By arbitrary forgiveness, I mean he just said, oh, you're a nice boy or nice girl. We'll forgive you. If that's really what salvation is, then why, why do we have a bloody cross? What's that for? It's quite clearly because there had to be an assaging of guilt here. There had to be a judgment going on. It was a bloody mess that was involved. It was hell that was involved. It wasn't just because God felt sorry for us and said, gee, I forgive you. God couldn't just forgive. Why couldn't? Think of his attributes. He's righteous. He's holy. Remember, that's what Paul said. The wonder of the gospel is what? That God could remain holy and justify the sinner. Romans chapter 3. All right, these are just some questions that we've thrown out tonight for yeah, your thinking and for just going through and getting the, the cream of the crop here out of these basic events. These are fundamental issues. They impact our society all around us. 
every day of our lives we're, we're operating on maps with these issues on them. So there are areas we need to think about. And I'm going to, in the last few minutes, uh, granted we don't have too many uh, minutes to do with this, but um, does anybody have a question on anything we said tonight or the series? Because, yes. God is a holy God. He has standards. The standards are violated by sin. When you have a violation of the standard, how do you how do you fix it? Well, we have in just in normal human justice, we know we have penalties that we pay. But those penalties we pay in human justice are just an analogy of God. Now think about in the Old Testament before Jesus people would confess their sin. But before they expected to hear God forgave them, they had to do something. And what they had to do was bring a lamb. And the priest had to slit the lamb's throat, bloody mess all over the place. And that was the atonement for the sin. Now, the person couldn't atone for the sin. You have to be careful. Nothing we do is sufficient to deal with that violated standard. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's the problem. That's what half the religions in the world would have you believe that if you do 2,082 good works, that'll balance the 152 bad works. So it's a scale problem. That has nothing to do with the gospel of Christ. In the gospel of Christ, Jesus Christ died on the cross and in that dying, he paid the price. Not me. Not because I wouldn't want to. It's just I can't. I don't have the assets because I'm a sinner. A sinner can't pay his own price. So Jesus Christ, as the innocent one, had to come and he had to be condemned. And that's the tragedy of the cross. That's why for three hours he was in darkness on the cross. And then finally, after three hours ended, he said, you know, to Tesalon, it's, it's finished. It's done with. It's over. So now, when we trust in him, we have to trust in him because God isn't going to automatically apply the results of that atonement. We have to trust him for that atonement. But apart from this, if you don't go along with the gospel of Christ and this atonement issue, here's what happens. You come over to another position where God arbitrarily forgives. Now you've got God himself compromising his own standards. And that's Paul in Romans chapter 3. That's why he says the wonder of the gospel is that God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Christ. Because Paul knew his Old Testament. And he knew that the holy, righteous God of the Old Testament could never, ever forgive sin without some sort of either compromising his own holiness or he had to somehow provide it. And the Old Testament saints really never knew how he was going to provide it. They just knew that, in fact, he would. And they trusted the Lord that way. In the New Testament, we have a benefit the Old Testament guys didn't have. We know how he provided. So for us, we can directly trust the finished work of Christ on the cross. But it's very vital that we see this because you wind up diluting the holiness of God. And you make turn his love into, a, into an emotional, gooey sentimentality. You know, God's a good guy kind of thing. Well, God, he's a loving God, but he's not a good guy. He's a holy guy. Um, are there any other questions?
Yes, yeah, there, that's a good point. Uh, I'm glad you brought that out, Laura. Um, the gravitation to a tribe, tribal allegiance, is probably a result of the fact that God separated the nations right after, you know, puts, he puts categories of 70 uh, out there, and we tend to identify with that. That's true. But in the New Testament, a real issue is made against ethnicity. You know what epistle it is? It's the epistle written to the city that lay between the Gentiles and the Jews, Rome. And it's very interesting. If you read the text in the book of Romans, I recently have been trying to get my facility back in Greek, and one of the things in reading Romans in the Greek, you see that Every time, you know, in the English Bible it says, to the Jew first and to the Greek. To the Jew first and to the Greek. Well, it's not just the conjunction chi that's in there between the Jew, chi, the Hellenos, Hellenos, which is the Greek word for, for Hellenic, Hellenistic, or, or Greek. But it's, it's got a little Greek particle, te, te, ka. And that little particle tells us that it, it should be really translated as a couplet. So the way we would translate it would be the Jew, both the Jew and the Greek together would probably be a better translation. See, Paul had a problem because the Roman church had the ethnicity in it and they had this pride. The Jews really got ticked off at the Gentile Christians. They got ticked off because the Gentile Christians weren't circumcised. They were apparently kind of, you know, they didn't have any Mosaic law and they probably were rough backgrounds, and they, they come into the to the communion, to the culture, and they bring all this garbage in with them. And the Jews, you know, I mean, they had maintained their ethnicity was to separate, and that was God-given too. But God called them to have fellowship. And God said, there's, a, there's an absolute standard going on between us, and you guys got to recognize that. What I'm getting at there, Laura, in the ethnicity of our time isn't so much that we don't... I fully acknowledge we bond more with our with our own more racial identity. What bothers me about the ethnicity we see now in society, it's getting to be that the ethnicity controls values. The value question, the absolute standards are getting to be relativized. Well, we have our standards. Well, we have our standards. Well, now think about it if you extend that. Did Germany of the 1930s and 40s have their standard? Everybody go along with their standard in Germany? They did, right? What happened at Nuremberg? The Allies came into Germany after World War II. Why did we have the Nuremberg trial? Well, they were trying the Nazi war criminals, right? Well, what law did the Nazi war criminals violate? Didn't violate any German law, did they? They were just carrying out German orders. So how could you convict a Nazi war criminal on the basis of German law? Couldn't. That's why Supreme Justice Jackson, who was one of the judges at Nuremberg, said, the only way we can convict at Nuremberg 
is to convict on the basis of a law that is above the provincial and above the transient. And at that point in human history, it's amazing. Here are all these non-Christians running around, you know, they don't believe in absolute. What if they wind up going back in the trunk and digging up for the occasion? An absolute. Such that the Nazis and the Americans and the Brits and the French and the Austrians were all under the same standard. You know, all of us now would become absolutists. It's convenient for us to do that. So that's an example of what we're saying. And what the tragedy is, in ethnicity, the ethnicity exceeds common standards of truth, falsehood, and values, and even language. Now, obviously, everybody has their own language. I'm not talking about different language in the sense of Spanish and English. I'm talking about the fact that you have an utter non-communication going on where because, not because of a language problem, but because of a perceptive problem. Them versus us. They're subhuman. And, and, the, and the, all I can say is the answer to that is get a friend of another race or another culture. Just get one. And all of a sudden you discover that they're human. And gee, they think, gee, you know, they have the same sin problem I have. And gee, the gospel means the same thing to them it does to me. And if you don't have that experience, you know, it's a, it's a cherish, a cherished thing. You should really try someday, sometime, to make a friend. Uh, take an Oriental person, for example, and get to know them as a Christian, if you can find a good Christian. And just learn. Just What you'll sense is you'll sense the Spirit of Christ in that person, in the Spirit of Christ in you, you have a bond. And it's not a cultural bond. You don't become Oriental. He doesn't become Occidental. There's the, the bond, those racial distinctions stay. But somehow there's a bonding that goes on. You recognize each other as a person. And of course, as, you know, as a redeemed person of Christ. So that's my point there. Yes, you're right. There's a tendency to do that because of design. Um, we've gone over. Uh, yes. case of the Germans? What it is? What does spiritually alive mm-hmm. to who we are now? Well, the exact description uh, we wouldn't have. We have pieces of the description that are given in the pages of the New Testament. And when you look at those passages that talk about us as children in Christ and Christ in us and we in Christ, it's talking about the fact that the character of the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity. Keep in mind, the Lord Jesus Christ walked around the earth as a human being and he was perfectly righteous. The only human being ever did that. Perfectly righteous. He dies, he resurrects, and he is ascended to heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit takes the qualities that he generated in his earthly life and begins to imbue them in our hearts. 
begins little by little to make us aware of the Father, make us aware of our sin, make us aware of God's grace, and then at the same time to empower us to live to the standards that Christ lived. Now, we're not going to because we're sinners, but the impetus, the impulse has been placed in the heart of the person who is a spiritual child of God. Not saying they're perfect, because their, their, their salvation doesn't depend upon this growth process. Their salvation depends on the righteous atonement of Christ. Sort of like, if I have a baby four years old or two years old, that baby's not an adult. Far from it. Got lots of growing to do. But can I say that the baby's alive? Yes, I can. But saying the baby's alive doesn't make it an adult. And that's the same way with us as believers. We are born again in Christ. We're like the babies. But we've got an awful lot of growing to do. And the fact that we're not yet grown doesn't mean we're dead. It just means we're not fully grown. So if you can think more in terms of just physical life, make an analogy, physical life or spiritual life, uh, is remarkably similar. So we are born again, just like we were originally born. We have life that was given to us at that point, that point of conception. And that life gradually expands and grows. But the growth can't be identified with the life. The life was there before the growth. The life causes the growth. The growth doesn't cause the life. And that's what's so hard to grasp about when we say we're spiritual children of God. It makes it sound like we either wear goody-two-shoes walking around. Or it sometimes connotes a wrong image to people that I am a child of God because I've done all these good things and I'm accepted as a child into his kingdom. That's not true. You can take a four-year-old baby. He may do good things. But he, he doesn't become any less your baby because of those good things. He was born into the family. So since he's born in the family, the family status doesn't change whether he wets his pants or whether he says goo-goo at the right time. The point still is he's your child. So the life is given at a point in time that then grows. We're going to have to cut it for this time because I know I've dragged this class on a little bit. Um, but if some of you have more questions, I'm, I'm, I'll be up here at the front. Father, we thank you for tonight, and we thank you for this year's class. And we pray that you would further embed these truths in our hearts, illuminate, continue to illuminate our hearts to truths that you want us to know and respond to. In those areas where we need to be reminded 110 different times, we pray that you would continue to remind us of those areas, that we may grow in obedience and trust you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see you next September.